Society 13 Podcast Network. Redefining podcasts. Do you like to listen? In a flicker of candlelight, on a turn of the tarot card, you'll find me, Avery Lewis, executive producer of History Goes Podcast, listening and doing other magical deeds. Remember, this episode is entirely listening support. If you'd like to join me and the other spirits in the dark, then do visit the support tab at historygoesbump.com or you might be seeing us from the other side of your mirror. (laughs) Thanks for listening. tells the story of the world and of our lives. Sometimes that history goes bump in the night. Broadcasting from the center of oddity and the supernatural in central Florida, it's the History Goes Bump podcast. Spooktacular people, welcome to this 205th episode of the History Ghost Bump Podcast. Ghost tours for the theater of the mind. I am your host, Diane. And this is Denise. On today's episode, we are going to be in Tennessee once again. This is a location that was suggested by our listener, Christopher Justice, and that is Old South Pittsburgh Hospital. Along with suggesting this location, Christopher also got us in contact with Melanie Ramsey, who is the founder of Military Veterans Paranormal, and she's going to join us in just a bit to share the history and hauntings of this location. She also shared some EVPs with us, which we will play for you in just a bit, so be prepared to turn up your headphones and see what you hear. And you all will be relieved to know I will not be doing any Tennessee accents on this one. We didn't get any commentary on your last one, so I'm not sure if you did a good job or if it was just so bad people were like, I'm not saying nothing. (laughs) We're just going to leave her alone. (laughs) Before we get into that, we want to welcome to the Spooktacular crew, Jennifer. Hey, Jennifer. Denise. What a great name. I like it. Hello, Denise. Laura. Hey, Laura. John. Hi, John. Chris. Hey, Chris. And Cat with a K. And hello, Cat with a K. And now, this moment, Naughty. This moment in oddity was suggested by Jill Phoenix. Forty years ago, a Texas socialite named Sandra West was buried in a very unique way after overdosing on prescription pills. We visited a cemetery where a man was buried sitting up in his chair, and we've shared the story of another man buried sitting on his motorcycle. West had a love of cars. She was a wealthy widow of Texas oil tycoon Ike West, so she had money to splurge on cars. Her favorite was a 1964 powder blue Ferrari. 
One of her final requests in a will she wrote in 1972 was to be buried sitting in that Ferrari in her lingerie. A grave measuring 19 feet long, 10 feet wide, and 9 feet deep was dug at the Alamo Masonic Cemetery. Concrete was poured around the sides, forming a box. On May 19, 1977, around 300 spectators and reporters gathered to witness the burial. A concrete slab was laid over the top to thwart vandals. Being buried in your lingerie in your Ferrari is a tad eccentric and certainly is odd. Scared yet? And now, this month in history. In the month of June, on the 10th, in 1652, silversmith John Hull opened the first mint in America in the state of Massachusetts. Hull was born in Market, Harborough, Leicestershire, in England. His family immigrated to Boston Harbor in 1635. The Hull homestead would become the location of the mint, although records are not clear where exactly on the property it was located. Most historians assume that the silversmith shop was also the mint because records indicate that silver for coining was sent to the shop. Hull was 27 when he began coining, and this was in defiance of English colonial law. He designed the first coin himself and named it the Pine Tree Shilling. This act of rebellion led Hull to become the mint master of the Massachusetts Bay Colony. Hull Street in Boston is named for him. The Old South Pittsburgh Hospital was built in 1959 and is located near South Pittsburgh Mountain in South Pittsburgh, Tennessee. This was a hospital for the care of the sick, but there are rumors of mistreatment. It was shut down after it was deemed unworthy of providing the quality and amount of care needed in the region. The dilapidated building has stood abandoned ever since. There is a dark history connected to murders and suicide, and that history seems to have led to hauntings. There are those who claim that this location is one of the most haunted in Tennessee. And for a little background on the city in which this is located, South Pittsburgh, Tennessee, was named for a city that it envisioned becoming like, that is Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. South Pittsburgh is spelled without an H at the end, though. The city in Pennsylvania was a huge iron manufacturing center, and South Pittsburgh was running towards that goal. The city was originally named Battle Creek Mines when its post office was established in 1869. Before this time, settlers were spread out and disorganized, but after the Civil War, more order was brought to the future town site. The only event related to the Civil War that took place here was an attack on Fort McCook, which was held by the Union at the time. The area was ravaged by soldiers marching through and taking livestock and property. Battle Creek Mines became the iron production center for the Southern States Coal, Iron, and Land Company, a company headed by British investors in 1873. In 1876, the city's name was officially changed to South Pittsburgh. In 1882, the company was purchased by the Tennessee Coal, Iron, and Railroad Company, and then four years later, the area was purchased by Nashville banker William Duncan. The town was platted and then incorporated in 1887. The city thrived until Tennessee Coal relocated. The production of concrete and other goods would breathe new life into the city in the early 1900s. 
Today, South Pittsburgh is known as the tidiest town in Tennessee and has a population of around 3,300. They must sweep their sidewalks a lot. Yes, because they are very tidy. We had a listener named Christopher Justice, and he had suggested a location to us called the Old South Pittsburgh Hospital, which is located in Tennessee. And he said he knew the perfect person to talk to us about this, and he got us in contact with Melanie Ramsey, who's the founder of Military Veterans Paranormal, and she has done extensive research on this location, and she really is the go-to person on this. She joins us now. How are you, Melanie? I'm doing well. Thank you for having me. What we'd love to know from you first is what got you interested in the paranormal? Well, I've been involved in the paranormal for this year makes 17 years. I like to focus on history and the research behind where a lot of these stories come from and then try and find plausible explanations for things so that as you whittle it down, either the truth comes out that, hey, this is what it is, or then you actually have a real anomaly and then that's just gets a whole other barrel of, of monkeys going. So about 17 years ago, it was in a course that I learned about some urban legends. And I just started doing research into it. And more and more things came out. And it just kind of tickled my fancy. Well, you do paranormal investigations. So I assume you've had some haunting experiences of your own. Yes, some places no. And other places, yes. It's it's not like on TV where everywhere you go within a span of 30 minutes, you're going to catch the holy grail of ghosts. <laughs> it, it doesn't work like that. But yeah, we've we've had our share. So you founded the Military Veterans Paranormal. What made you decide to form your own investigation group? And it's very unique in that it's obviously military. Yes, we are all, every single one of us, in order to be a member of MVP, you have to have either served in the military and have been honorably discharged, which we confirm with the DD-214 to ensure there's no stolen valor, or you can be active duty. We'd love to thank you guys for your service, first of all. And then I love that it's MVP. That's just perfect. Yeah. People in the military, we tend to have an ego. So it's our way of stroking <laughs> our ego once we become civilians, you know, so. <laughs> but we structure it just like we do any you know, squad or unit when we are active duty. Being in the military is more than just a job. It becomes a lifestyle. And once you leave service, you miss that camaraderie. And for a lot of us that have deployed and served in Iraq or Afghanistan, in fact, all of us have, we're all combat veterans, we miss that mission, that purpose. So sure. it's a way to get veterans as well as bring active duty service members involved into having a different mission. It's a healthy hobby, he maintains that camaraderie so that it helps to skirt that 22 veterans a day loss that we are we're experiencing in the military circles. Well, and that makes me wonder with when it gets into paranormal investigations, I would think that you guys would have a unique perspective into the afterlife and hauntings in general. Plus, a lot of people when you've been in combat, you know, you're going to come back with some PTSD. Does that have any effect when it comes to your paranormal investigating? Believe it or not, it does, but in a different way. Several members and people who have joined us on investigations do struggle with PTSD. For me personally, I don't like silence. Silence scares me. Mm -hmm. However, when we're doing these investigations, it's the only time that I can sit in quiet because it's not quiet to me. I hear every little thing, every little thing. And I've noticed my team members we pick up on things that I think a lot of people pass over. And when we go to historic sites, especially if there's some sort of military history, it actually helps gauge the questions 
that we ask and we can speak and ask questions that if there is something there and it is tied to the history of the location, we can make a connection on a totally different level. Yeah, I hadn't even thought about that because you might have a little bit of camaraderie there with other soldiers and such. And so they might pick up on that and you would know particular things to ask them in general. And the other point that you made there, I'd never thought of either, is that you guys really have to have a keen listening ability because you're listening for the enemy to be coming. So you would be able to hear things that we normally wouldn't maybe listen for. Right. It's all We call it our TTPs, our tactics, techniques, and procedures. We have a very distinct methodology of how we function. We, Like I said, we do it just like we are on a mission. And when we say mission, that's when you're downrange or you're overseas and you've got something that you've got to accomplish. Well, there's certain ways that certain things are done. We don't discuss if we think we heard something. We don't step on our own data. We use military hand and arm signals to communicate when we're inside. We are very disciplined with noise and light discipline. When I tell my guys, look, find some real estate and pop a squat, I know my guys are going to go in that room. They're going to find a place to sit and they're not going to move. They're going to sit absolutely still to maintain noise and light discipline. Wow. This is already way more fascinating than I thought it was going to be. What a great perspective. Thanks for sharing that. Absolutely. So you obviously don't go around saying, did you hear that? Did you hear that? No. In (laughs) fact, we, you know, true story when uh, we did have one guy and uh, a member of our team and it it was, I think it was uh, this location or another location. He got excited because it was very distinct what we heard. And he said, I think I just heard. And I literally just grabbed him and choked him. I was like, (laughs) no, you're not saying anything. (laughs) Yeah. So it it happens sometimes. We're, we're a really tight family, but they know, you know, if I say, I'm going to put a boot in your chest. If you ask one, can you give me a sign of your presence? If I hear that somebody's going down. I love it. (laughs) Boot in the chest. So the old South Pittsburgh hospital How do you have a connection to it or what got you interested in it? I know that when you look around about it, it's reportedly, and Denise and I always kind of do the finger quotes and giggle about most haunted location in Tennessee, but what attracted you to it? When I was active duty on Fort Campbell, I was on a team Screaming Eagle Paranormal, and which later became merged into Military Veterans Paranormal. They had told me some things about OSPH and we went down there together. And I was talking to the manager and she knew that I have a background with research and I'm really good at asking questions and not stopping. So I asked her, do you want me to start looking into the real history behind this location and some of the urban legends? And it took me just over a year to get the majority of the information to her. And it was really fascinating. Now, I will tell you, in all fairness, I'm not going to blow smoke up your butt and tell you it's a unicorn fart. That's just not the type of person I am. I'm, I'm a very straight shooter. So I gave her the facts. This is not true. This is not true. This is not true. But this is true. And you didn't know this information. And I gave it to her in a dossier form. You don't see that on their page. Yeah, got issues with that. So. Yeah, I was going to say, there's definitely nothing on there that says, and this research is from Melanie Ramsey. Uh, you know, and for me, I don't care. I've done research for a lot of different teams, a lot of different locations. It's not about me. I'm more about, I want the real history out, mm-hmm. especially if it's claiming to be military history. It's very personal because you're talking about brothers and sisters of combat arms that may have passed here or there was a fight there. And it is very personal to us. So when you start messing with military history, you're doing a disservice 
to the men that died on that field. At the same time, I'm Native. I'm Native American. So it bothers me when at the end of it all, if they can't prove this, well, it was a Native American burial site. That That's another big pet peeve. So I go through and I don't internet surf. What I do is I go to experts. In the military, we call them SMEs, subject matter experts. There are no experts in the paranormal. So why won't I just go to an academic? We use universities. I will pull records, county clerks, genealogy, libraries. I mean, I dig because I'm nosy too. So, <laughs> it really works for me. Well, we always joke when it comes to Native American burial grounds that pretty much the entire United States of America must be one huge burial ground because everywhere claims to be that. <laughs> Yes, everywhere you go. Never mind the fact that in some of these locations, you know, Tennessee is known for the mound, Indian mound builders, Mm -hmm. where they buried in the mounds. But, you know, hey, far be it for me to say, no, your backyard was a Native American burial ground there, too. Yeah, that's how we work. We just just leave them everywhere. Yeah, never mind the fact that the Trail of Tears cuts through this area and they have sites for it. But nope. It's your the front left corner of your homestead was a Native American burial ground. Yeah, I have four letter words that I usually like to share with people who try and pull that one on me and doesn't go over very well. (laughs) So do we know what was on the property where the old South Pittsburgh Hospital sits right now? What was there before it was there? Land. Just land. Okay. just land. It was farming land. Now, as far as the Native American information on their site, they say that there was a, in 1778, it was a Cherokee tribe that was Chiaha that used the land. And that is actually incorrect. I'm Muscogee Creek Indian. Chiaha is a Muscogee Creek tribe. Mm. Chiaha and Cherokee tribes did not. They, they didn't like each other. They actually fought. Chiaha's not Cherokee. And they weren't there. It was more North Carolina, Florida, the northern tip of Tennessee, the three areas that a Chiaha was chieftain was was at. So that part was completely wrong. And I was able to confirm that with a man named Mark Smith, who in Tennessee, he's considered an expert in Native American history. Yeah. So that part is incorrect. And South Pittsburgh is not Pittsburgh Landing. So okay. they're, they're two different places we're talking about here. It was a plantation, but we were And from what I understand from the clerk's office, that there was farming there. There was, they have no records of, you know, a major fire that killed seven children. But who's to say that didn't happen? I can't prove that it did. I can't prove that it didn't. But it's not Pittsburgh Landing. And it's not where the Battle of Shiloh occurred at all. The Battle of Shiloh occurred in, well, Shiloh, Tennessee, which is three and a half hours away. This Valentine's Day, Dunkin's got the perfect pairings to show your love. So get down on one knee with a dozen brownie batter donuts and a cocoa mocha signature latte. Or make them swoon with a strawberry dragon fruit Dunkin' refresher with a Cupid's Choice Donut. Are you ready for love? America runs on Dunkin'. Price and participation may vary. Limited time offer. The other thing that's claimed about there is that there is a spring there and that the ground is limestone. Is that true? No, as of, as of from, uh, I work with Sharon Hill sometimes and I have submitted the coordinates of it. And so that she can, she's an actual geologist. Okay. She's the one who was able to get the geological, uh, evaluation for when I did Bobby Mackey's so far, nothing has been confirmed that it sits on limestone or anything else like that. 
This is not to say that there weren't skirmishes in the area. It was the South. The Civil War was fought in the South. So there's skirmishes all over the place. But as far as the major battle that they're claiming being the Battle of Shiloh, sorry, that's my dog. That was not here. That sounds like a little dog. That it is. He thinks he's large, but he's not. Yeah, we yeah. have a little Maltese. Same same problem. Yeah. I will tell you, they they actually make really good service dogs. Oh, sure. Yeah. It's a, he's a Lhasa Apso. So, <laughs> yeah. He makes me look really brave. <laughs> yeah, he does wonders for my ego. There you go. So when was the old South Pittsburgh hospital built and w- what was the purpose of it? Was it supposed to just be a hospital or are we are we looking at psychiatric stuff? No, it was built in 59. It was supposed to be originally it was supposed to be like a, a community hospital. That part is relatively true. And it did function quite fine. It had an emergency room. It was large. It had a whole bunch of extra rooms. It was called the South Pittsburgh Municipal Hospital at the time, and it was founded by a Dr. Havron and four other doctors. But the problem was it grew too small. Mm. And in order for them to renew their contract, because times had changed, they would have had to make so many other significant changes to the facility itself. So instead, what happened was they built a whole other hospital facility just across the way from there. And that was pretty much the end of South Pittsburgh Hospital. Okay. And then what did it become after that? It was geared to become a nursing facility. That was the point of they wanted to, the owner who bought it, wanted to change it into a nursing facility. However, code violations, he just couldn't get it up to par. They wanted, OIG wanted so many things changed that it just sat and it became a storage facility where, you know, I mean, if you go in there, there is a car in one of the hallways parked. Yeah. (laughs) How he got it in that particular hallway blows, if anything is paranormal, that had to have been paranormal because I cannot figure out how he fit it in there. But it's parked in the middle of a hallway. And keep in mind, towards the latter part of South Pittsburgh Hospital, there were complaints. And I did share them with the owners that what I had found, there were several OIG complaints about medical malpractice on children that were disabled for Medicaid purposes, billing purposes. Mm. So there, there was a lot of unfortunate things that started happening. And so when the new facility came up, it was a good thing. You know, they were able to close quietly. It seems like a lot of those hospitals back then, they did have a problem with overcrowding, not enough staff. And, you know, you don't have a lot of oversight. So that kind of stuff does happen. Right. And it's a small town. It is a, I will tell you, when I started doing research on South Pittsburgh, I always, I I start looking before, you know, on a location. So I looked into the individuals, the doctors who founded it. And everybody seemed to know everybody. And it got to a point where one of the founders of the hospital, his name was Dr. Havron, his first wife, Carolyn, was murdered. And supposedly he was on call, but there were 13 minutes that went unaccounted for of his whereabouts. She was having a party that night at her house, which is not too far from the hospital. It was walking distance from the hospital. In fact, part of her grounds touched the grounds of the hospital. Her eight-year-old son found her and called the ER and told her dad, I can't wake up mommy. They sent people out and she had been shot in the head. They never caught the assailant. Three days later, the case was closed with no arrests. (laughs) Wow. I have Uh, never heard anything being closed that quickly with no arrests. Uh, What did they? And they They, didn't claim that it was a suicide or anything, right? 
No, they claimed it was a murder. It was reported in several different papers. Uh, She was very well liked, very, very well respected. Unfortunately, back then, Dr. Havron had a reputation for being a ladies man, whether or not that part is true, you know, small town rumor mills go. Mm -hmm. He did not move back into the house. And in fact, he rented the house out to a Jerome Abel's. Jerome Abel's was later found dead in his office and the pool house burned down. So they just decided to go ahead and destroy the entire home. Wow. So the doctor seems to be connected to a couple of weird incidents here with Inc- death. Uh-huh. Well, if he's got 13 minutes, he can't account for. And as we know nowadays, it seems like if the wife dies, the perpetrator in most cases seems to be somebody who's related to her, usually the husband. So hmm, very interesting. Right. And since you said this is a small town, I'm assuming that uh-huh. he's well known. He's powerful. Very well known. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he was so. he was very well known, very powerful. In fact, I was asked to stop asking questions and to let it go. I'm not surprised then, especially if they've closed the case that quickly. I, I don't know. To me, it seems pretty clear what happened there. <laughs> mm-hmm. And what's crazy is when I talked to longtime residents around there, they said that, you know, once the hospital got going, he started making seen amount of money, which then he got involved in banking and other things like that. But he became very powerful in the community. Everybody remembers what happened. What surprised them all was how quiet it became, how quickly and how quiet it became, and then was just buried and never discussed again. It was not allowed to be discussed again. And then when Mr. Abels died, other some people started asking questions about that. And then the next thing you know, the home was completely leveled and destroyed. Now, was the doctor still with the hospital when it closed? Yes. So what did he do after it closed? He went and he had his own practice. Most of the doctors, nurses, everybody went to the new hospital. He had his own practice for a little bit. Supposedly, there are some hauntings going on here. We know lots of people die in hospitals. So I'm assuming there were quite a few people who died here as well. Is Mm -hmm. that what they attribute the hauntings to or is it something else? I've heard specific claims about, obviously, there's like a little girl there that shows up. Uh, They even have a room set up for her. I've never, and with a very generic name as Jenny, I can't tell you how many hospitals I've, I've been in where they claim to have a Jenny. She must travel a lot or they're all cousins or something, but okay. <laughs> I've not been able to confirm anything on that. And keep in mind, unfortunately, they left a lot. Unfortunately for them, they left records. Oh. So they gave us access to certain areas. We didn't want to violate HIPAA. I was mm-hmm. combat medic in the army. So I wanted to respect people's privacy and things like that. So I didn't shift, th- go through them. We, I'm sure we could have spent hours in there looking for a Jenny at some point, but it's such a common name. Now, it wasn't until I came across things about James Paris that now that was attributed to him, what they think. There was a few years where they claimed it was a janitor who died in an elevator and was haunting the location, but said janitor is actually very much alive and works at the new hospital still to this day. And I spoke to him. He's doing well. He's not dead in an elevator. It wasn't him. <laughs> you know, he's great at his job. In fact, he even got a promotion. There is a nurse that they said died in the hospital floor, strangely, and they tried to do CPR. But afterwards, doing some research and talking to some of the other nurses who knew her, she actually had a heart problem. She had been complaining about it and she had a heart attack in 
one area where the nurse's station is walked out and then collapsed and they were not able to revive her, but it was of natural causes, nothing outlandish. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Now, James Paris, however, was his death happened after it closed. Now, there is a rumor that it was it remained open and it was used for the criminally insane for several years until early 2000s. But after speaking with several LEOs in the area, law enforcement officers, that is also not true. Once it closed, it closed. So this James Paris, you had sent Mm -hmm. me an article about him. Apparently, he is a child molester. So how is he connected to the hospital? James Paris was actually the cousin of the manager of Old South Pittsburgh Hospital, the current manager. And his name used to be James Welch. He changed his names to James Edry Paris, and he had moved to Florida. Then all of a sudden, he shows back up, and he was living with her for a while, and she and her daughter felt very uncomfortable with him in the house. So he moved into the basement of South Pittsburgh Hospital, and he actually left with her husband and moved into the basement of South Pittsburgh Hospital as a couple. He was an avid drug user. He had diabetes. And she did not know that he had been charged with sexual assault of a minor in Sarasota, Florida, and that he was being looked at for. They were searching for him. They found his body. He went missing for a little bit. And they, her husband found his body slumped over in the basement and he could not be revived. And they all thought it was a drug overdose. So I had access to some records and I actually found it was either the a day or two written before his death, but it was sent on a timed email. So you know how you can make draft emails and then you can, on this day, it's going to go out? Yeah. Well, that's what happened. One week later, the email was sent out to several members of his family where he apologized for things that he had done wrong in his life. He believes that you should live life to the fullest and tell his daughter he loved her very much and he loved his life. It was basically a goodbye letter. It was a farewell. It was a farewell email. She had never seen it before, so I gave it to her. We did not publish anything about it. We gave it to her for her discretion, and she said, this is him. This sounds exactly like any and everything that he would say. So it looks to me like it wasn't an overdose, an accidental overdose. It looks like it was intentional. It was a suicide note. Um, Nonetheless, nothing, you know, his remains were cremated, but all of his stuff was still downstairs. I mean, when we went down there, I had to have my, my team, I made sure that we wore our combat boots and everybody had gloves because there were syringes still down there. Oh, wow. His favorite clothes were down there. Food was still down there. I mean, it it was pungent. It was a wreck. It was was insane. Well, so basically he was squatting there. Yes, he was. Which you wouldn't, at the time, you wouldn't have been able to tell the difference because it looks like for a while there, the owner was hoarding and keeping everything in there. (laughs) So it, he just kind of blended in. Who owns the hospital today? He's an act. He's actually a practicing physician that I'm not supposed to give his name out. Gotcha. Because okay. he ha- he does have an active medical practice. Okay. I was just trying to see if it had moved away from who had owned it at the time when he had died or so it's somebody no. different. No, somebody, uh, a physician actually owns it. And like, a, you know, his whole goal was to turn it into a nursing facility, but he just, what they want done, it far exceeds what it would be capable of. 
And at this point, OSPH has become quite dilapidated. One of the things my, my team does is when we go into a location, we do what we do in the military. We clear the rooms mm-hmm. and we put up telltale signs to know if somebody has breached an area. The last visit that we went there, we did it jointly with a law enforcement officer. And it's kind of crazy. You know, you see a female and two males and we're on point with our weapons on one side and they're on point on the other side. And you just hear us clearing out rooms, clearing out rooms because there are breach points. Um, You could see where people have broken in and you can see how they're able to access certain areas. So we were able to board those areas up to try and prevent it, at least with us. And we had put we spent a good three hours just setting up breach points, area telltale signs, and securing the location before we could even get started. I can't think of a better group of people than military to go through and do a paranormal investigation because you're going to make sure that that is pretty much contamination-free. Maybe there might be a rat running around, but wow. Mm -hmm. And and we notate that. Like, we look if, hey, you see these droppings, okay, we know we're going to have critters, or we know critters can get in and out of a a little dime-sized hole, so be advised for that we sit for a minute or two before everything and nobody can make a sound. And that's when I tell them, you know, find some real estate and pop a squat because you have to get acclimated to the sounds of your location. How does it settle? What do you hear? If I hear a hum, then I know there is in fact electricity. We need to find the source of the electricity. Where's the breaker box to see how far out, what does it work? Because originally when I was going there, I was told there was no power on the third floor. Well, we followed the hum, and there is, in fact, complete power all throughout the building. So why that's important is if you use, for example, a Zoom or a Tascam DR40 like we use, we put on additional Sure mics to make it hypersensitive. If I don't know that there's an electrical current running, then I can mistake that hum or a fluctuation in the hum as something paranormal. When actually, it's just a spike from where a generator is going or, you know, it's electricity. It, it's that's, I mean, you can hear a nap fart with that thing. <laughs> so it's really important for us to know the truth about it. Unfortunately, we go to a lot of locations, you get a story and you don't know if it's true. So we also are the only team to literally get down and we measured every height of the walls, entranceways, hallways length with everything of the entire hospital. So we had our bearings and we knew, okay, you're going to have acoustic problems here. You're going to have matrixing here. This floor is unlevel here so that it helps us so that our minds don't jack with us when we're doing it. So how many times have you, has your team investigated the old South Pittsburgh hospital? I've been to OSPH five or six times. Uh, my team's been there twice. Well, I know that you sent me three clips. I don't know if you want to call them EVPs, but there's some weird anomalies in there. We're going to play those EVPs for you guys right now. In this first one, there are two separate recordings here. I'm going to play them in their original setting. So you might have to turn up your earplugs, but just be aware that we're going to come back and talk. So I don't want to blow your ears out. What I'll do is play the original twice. And we'll see what you guys think you hear in there.
Now, with those two, there is nothing in those rooms at all. I'm going to play it amplified now for you. In this one, it sounds like they might have caught something. I'm going to go ahead and play it out, see if you guys catch what I caught. Code. Or maybe you were one of the doctors that worked here, and you saved a bunch of lives and helped out people. And maybe you just like to come back to your old place to visit. And we'll play it again. Code. Or maybe you were one of the doctors that worked here. And you saved a bunch of lives. And helped out people. And maybe you just like to come back to your old place to visit. Now I'm going to amplify the area that I thought I heard something a little different. And you saved. And we'll play it again. And you saved. Two that are uh, both in a room where there's nobody has been in there. Mm-hmm. Just it was amazing to me because you said you didn't tell me anything about him. You just said here, listen to these. So I listened to him. And the ones that are in the empty room are the most chilling thing I've heard in a really long time. Because you're just Uh sitting there, you're hearing basically just maybe static or empty space. And the one sounds like, not necessarily a boo, but it's like a moan or something like that. It's it's very ghost-like sounding, like what you would expect a ghost to sound like. Uh Uh-huh. And then the other one, I was like, well, that sounds like somebody who's breathing into the microphone. But when you were like, nobody was in that room and I trust you and believe you, I'm like, well, something sounded like it was breathing into the recorder. And what's crazy with that is we actually tested on our microphones and I have a sample of what it sounds like if we breathe into the microphone or we tap or adjust the microphone it's much louder because it's a very, very hypersensitive device that we use. So what we use our cameras for is not to catch some apparition walking across a hallway. We use it for accountability. Mm-hmm. We post it up so I know in our talk, our tactical operations center, where everyone is at all times and it's logged. What device is in which room, who's in what room. And these were done in operating rooms. So I ensure that the doors were closed, vents were sealed, they, you know, duct tape seals everything. And it's great. So we duct tape the heck out of things. And I don't allow hard soled shoes only mm. because the last thing I need is clink, clink, clink on anything. Sure. So soft soled shoes. But if it's linoleum, your shoes are off. You're in your socks. So that way I know, hey, if I hear footsteps here or if I hear a clank, 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 I know it's not one of my guys. By the end of the night, I should look at the bottom of your socks and they should be filthy. 
<laughs> That's an interesting way to investigate. I wish more investigators would do that because I think there is a lot of contamination with footsteps and mm-hmm. such. The other yeah. clip that you sent, one of your team is talking about something. Mm-hmm. And then there's like a little bit of a space. And it's after he says something like, "Are were you the doctor? Are you the doctor? Or something like that. Mm-hmm. And then there's a little bit of a space. And then he starts talking again, because obviously EVPs, we don't know something is speaking to us. Correct. And I thought I caught something that sounded, I don't know that it would be female, but it was definitely higher pitched than his voice. So I knew it wasn't his voice. And since he right. was starting to say something, I'm like, well, there's no way that he could say two things at once. And mm-hmm. you can't really make out what's being said, but I could believe it would be saying yes to the question that was asked. And then you had told me I'm the only female on the team and it mm-hmm. wasn't me. So mm-hmm. and it sounded to me like it could be a female because it is a, a higher pitch or something. Or maybe you were one of the doctors that worked here and you saved a bunch of lives. And what's unique about that is I shared the clip with you, but I did not tell you what we thought it said. No, and we did not. And I did not tell you that we thought it was a female voice. And the reason why I shared the what I shared with you the way I did, I just gave you the clips and I said, listen to this, listen to this, listen to this. If I would have told you what I thought it was automatically, I introduced confirmation bias. Mm hmm. So that's why my team members and I, we don't talk about it. If we hear a clip or something, we have our own pads of papers. We write down what we think we heard. Everybody folds it up. It goes into one thing and then we pull them out one by one. And that way we avoid our own confirmation Mm -hmm. bias and contamination. Everybody got the same thing that you got. The crazy thing is I was playing dead in a completely different area and I had a mic attached to me as well as a police body cam. And it shows that not only did I not move, I didn't make a sound because it records everything. Wow. Yeah. What was so interesting about that clip is I was listening at the beginning because in one of the spaces, I don't know, it's just if there was some background type noise or something like that. So I was listening to that really intently and trying to amplify that. And I'm like, no, I'm not really hearing anything. Maybe there's nothing there. And then I listened to the him talking a couple of times and I went, wait a minute. I'm kind of hearing something weird right here. And then when I clicked in on it and amplified it, I was like, yep, I'm definitely hearing something there. So I definitely was not because I wasn't even looking in that part for it. I was looking somewhere else because I have all the audio engineering stuff. I can look to see where the little peaks in the sound mm-hmm. are at. And I'm like, well, there's a peak there and a peak there. So let me check those out. So I was busy mm-hmm. looking at those. So it was it was really weird to me when I was listening further. And then I went, wait a minute, wait a minute. That I bet that's what she wants me to listen to. And I was like, oh, that's weird. I didn't, I don't, I don't want to pinpoint sometimes, hey, listen at this second. And I never clip really close to there. The reason why is I give five, 10 seconds before or five, 10 seconds after as well, so that you can see that there's no alterations, no change. You get a sense of what's going on somewhat. When I send you data, I can't like amplify or noise reduce because then I'm contaminating the data that I'm sending you. Mm-hmm. I have to send it to you as we just pull it off and then you listen to it and then you can, if you you think you hear something, then you can do it because that way I maintain the integrity of the data that I have just sent out. So did you guys, I know you're probably taking video and pictures and everything. Did you pick up anything else that was weird to you at all? We picked up, it sounds like, and this is the third time this has happened to us. We were sitting down and you start hearing furniture move, like being heavy furniture being dragged across the floor hmm. on the upstairs. So I, I thought for sure, I was like, 
who's moving stuff? And I took role and we're all there. So we separated in our fire teams, one on one side, one on thinking somebody got in this building and now oh, we got you. And so we get upstairs and not only is there no one upstairs, there's no furniture. <laughs> oh, wow. Now that's creepy. Now It was crazy. That's Another nice. time was we simulated an actual coding. So we simulated from the outside that I got shot. We had the gurney, scrubs, everything. Got me to an OR room where we even had a sound machine flatline me. And then they turned off the machines. They put the sheet over me and they walked out. But we left the recorder running. Then they go downstairs to quote unquote talk to the family. But they were just going down to sit. So I'm up there by myself on this gurney being dead for a good 30 minutes. And I start hearing shoes across a hard floor, <laughs> like the, like the, um, like the click, click, click of a shoe. Mm-hmm. And at first I thought when I stop being dead, I'm going to choke the shit out of somebody. <laughs> That's the first thing I thought. And then I re- once they, you know, I hear the index, 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 which is our call sign to, okay, that iteration is over. I get up and I go downstairs and they're all sitting there eating. Um, must have been nice. And I was like, who was walking upstairs? And nobody, nobody's was walking. Everybody still had their shoes off. And I look at the film footage. Nobody was upstairs with me. It was just me on the gurney. I don't know how you laid there for 30 minutes under a sheet all by yourself. I would have been so freaked out. <laughs> well, here's the thing. Happening, eh? I think this is why my team's really good. Now, don't get me wrong. There are times that we'll get startled and mm-hmm. we'll laugh about it. But when it comes to things like this, this noise, this light discipline, that's that military training kicking in. Mm. You know, once you've been mortared a few times or shot at, very little (laughs) is going to freak you out. I mean, if they're dead and I'm going to be dead, hey, at least it's got to be better than under this gurney right here. This sucks. But and I'm not in Iraq, so I can't really complain about that. So Mm. I just took it as a nice little break because I've been walking all day. And I was actively listening. You sit very, very still and you actively listen. Now I know that, okay, there was air coming in from somewhere. I knew that, okay, I got to control my breathing a little bit more because it's too loud. At the same time, I heard something in a wall. So there's critters. Mm -hmm. So keep that in mind. It was really weird because when you think it's dead quiet, it's not. It's for me personally, I'll tell you, everything is very, very loud. And same thing for my team members. It's the only time I can sit in quote unquote silence without feeling like, okay, I'm about to be ambushed or something, you know, it's it's crazy. You just, you just lay very still and you just, if they don't move, I'm moving. Sounds like an interesting place. People who go there, they all claim that you don't go there without having something happen to you. And it sounds like you guys have definitely had things that can't necessarily explain happen to you while you're there. Right. I mean, there are things that we have been able to explain. There are things that we've said, okay, it could possibly be this. And then things like, you know, we were there 24 hours and we just got a little bit of clips though out of the whole time because we were able to explain some of the other things. These we've sent out to audio engineers. We've sent out, I even thought at one point, is this an animal? So I took it to a friend of mine who studies animal sound. She's getting her master's degrees in, of all things, her master's thesis is on the various sounds of cats. What kind of sound would this be, an animal sound? She said, well, we got to look at it through this and this. And it turned out to not be. We use the Pratt system. So that's how we were able to conclude it's the word yes. Wow. Is there anything else that you wanted to share with the listeners before we let you go? There is a location 
in Central City, Kentucky, and it's called Wielden Manor. And I will tell you of the numerous, numerous places we've ever been to, I would encourage people to look into going there. This is one place that we've had such activity. And I took skeptics and cynics with me as well to make sure that I wasn't crazy. And the activity was uh, mind blowing. Wow. It absolutely was mind blowing. And and I, I'm telling people about this place because a lot of these places that you see on TV are tapped out and there's a lot of hype about it. Mm-hmm. Well, this is a location that's very low key. I've done research on it. I've been going there three, four years trying to figure it out. And so I took some of my skeptic buddies with me and what happened basically reignited the fire that, holy crap, that just happened. We literally looked at each other and said, that just happened. That was insane. So look into that place. Well, to hear you saying that, that definitely it lends some credence to the fact that people might be claiming that it's haunted and I've never heard of it. So mm-hmm. you're right about that. It's not, not put out there. It is interesting when you come from a more, we call ourselves open-minded skeptic. So I believe yeah. that there's something there. I just don't know what it is. Mm-hmm. And when you have something happen to you that you're like, okay, I can't explain that. It mm-hmm. does make you go, well, there's something here. I don't know if it was a ghost or not, but I don't know how that happened. And everybody right. around me, I trust and none of us is playing around. So I don't know how that happened. So, And that's how I am. I'm going to start stealing your words just so you know. I'm an open-minded skeptic here. Mm-hmm. I I don't know if ghosts exist. I don't. I can't prove they exist. I can't prove they don't. I can just collect data. And there are very few times in the last 17 years that I have sat there and I said, you know, what the bleep 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 was that did how did that just happen so no let's i'm racking my brain we're gonna stand in a line we're gonna everybody spread your fingers hands in the air foot to foot face this wall ask the same damn question and the same thing happened to us wow and so we were like got it noted check in the box we will be back especially if you're getting repeatable stuff like that that does not usually happen Mm mm-hmm it's and I had to tell the home the the actual owner of it. This is that particular thing. This has never happened to me before. I've never seen anything like this. I I mean I don't believe in orbs. I don't believe you know little green vision men are gonna come out of a a closet. I don't like clowns, but I don't think they're gonna pull me under a bed and kill me. I'm not like that. This was one of those things where it was a tangible item, and it it I know I was facing a wall along with three other skeptics that kept us from saying, no, there, there's something. I don't know what it is. Can't explain it, but there's something and we have to come back. Well, Melanie, where can people find out more about your group? Um, we are on Facebook, uh, Military Veterans Paranormal. We also have a website and it's a very unique name. It's Military Veterans Paranormal because, yeah, we're snazzy like that. We didn't really... <laughs> We were just thinking, well, what are we? We're military and we're veterans and we're in the paranormal. Let's go with it. So, yeah, we're on Facebook. You can look us up on Twitter, MV Paranormal TN. So we're all over the place and we get back to people. Our Facebook page, our Twitter is not just about the paranormal. We throw ideas out there. We share about our brothers and our sisters who are still in service, crack jokes. It's about having fun in this hobby and not taking it too darn serious. When we're on mission, then we're serious about it. But other than that, we'll crack some jokes and we're not always uh, socially appropriate. 
(laughs) (laughs) Well, thank you so much for joining us. And definitely thank you to you and your team for your service to our country. The fact that you are all combat veterans, it just, you people are amazing to me. And thank you for the sacrifices that you make so that we can all live our lives and be free and enjoy, you know, what's going on for the living. (laughs) Well, thank you. And actually, we always just say, you no need to thank us because it really is an honor and a privilege to serve our country. I would do it again any day of the week and twice on Sundays. Oh, wow. Well, thank you, Melanie. Have a great evening. You too. Take care. Thank you. All right. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Is Old South Pittsburgh Hospital haunted? That is for you to decide. I have to say, Denise, this is one of my most favorite interviews that we've done. I had a great time talking to Melanie and learning about their techniques and such. Yes, because I enjoy all of our, our interviews, but I liked the brassiness of Melanie. It was really fun. I knew you would because Taekwondo and any martial art is paramilitary and you are no nonsense when you're teaching. Oh, no, I'm sweet. Don't believe her. Don't believe her for a minute, guys and girls. <laughs> she made me do plenty of push-ups, so I know what I'm talking about. Oh. For our next episode, we're kind of throwing in the towel on our whole argument about the fact that, well, most cemeteries are not haunted. We say that a lot. And really, when you look at all the cemeteries all around the world, which would include our national cemeteries, a lot of our historic cemeteries, some of our modern day cemeteries, your little family plots, maybe some cemeteries that we don't even know that they're out there anymore. For the most part, if you lump all of those together, you could say that in general, on average, cemeteries are not haunted because we like to say, why would the dead want to hang out with the dead? But there are quite a few haunted cemeteries out there. And we thought, you know, we need to start focusing on these a little bit. And a lot of cemeteries don't have a whole lot of information behind them so they wouldn't fill a whole episode. So we're going to start doing a series and we'll throw these in every so often of haunted cemeteries where we'll feature three to four cemeteries. And occasionally we'll have people join us who want to talk about certain cemeteries and share some of the history and hauntings there. We're going to be joined by Owl Going Back. And a lot of you probably already know Mike Brown, who is host of The Pleasing Terrors on our next episode. So we're looking forward to bringing that to you. We're not going to tell you what cemeteries yet, though. You'll have to find out. Yes, and don't just think you might know because you know the two people we're having on because we might trick you or we might not. I will tell you that of the four cemeteries that we'll be talking about, we've been to three of them. That's because we like cemeteries and we're (laughs) taffophiles. We'd like to point you guys towards our website, historygoesbump.com. And Denise, if people want to send us some feedback, where can they do that? They can do that at historygoesbump at gmail.com. For those of you who are executive producers, especially you newbies, we'd love to have you send us a little something in our inbox, which would be an MP3 with you doing a little intro. We're having to do a lot of reruns now and we'd like to freshen those up. So you're more than welcome to join in. Let us know if you want to do one and we'll send out the script to you. We've got it up on Patreon. If you scroll back through, you can see it over there. It's just pretty basic or you can do whatever you want. We really don't care as long as you're not. uh, We don't have to censor everything that you say. We want to give a shout out to Adriana over on YouTube. She left us a message and Denise, she is listening to us from Kenya. Oh, very cool. Yeah, I thought that was very cool. She goes, I'm probably the only person listening to you in Africa, but hey. Hey, I want to go to Africa. That's been on my radar for a long time. And we did a location a long time ago that was in South Africa, and it was suggested by somebody who lived there. So I know we've got more than just Adriana listening to us in Africa, but I thought that was so cool. Also, Alan Tigwell 
took a little walk out in the woods near Kent, and he shared with all of us in the Spooktacular crew a carving, I guess is what it would be, Lady in the Woods, and it is very cool. So if you're in Kent, go find her. Yes, absolutely. It was really neat. And via email, we did hear from Jonathan. He had some experiences at Sloth Furnaces, which we covered on episode 142. I started to listen to your podcast about two months ago and love it. I know you guys take suggestions for podcast episodes. Well, where I live in Birmingham, Alabama has a lot of haunted places. I visited Sloth Furnaces many times and have seen big black shadows or heard voices telling me to get back to work when no one is around. Keep up the great work. And then we heard from Andrea via email. Hello, Diane and Denise. I found your podcast through Twisted Philly, and I'm so glad I did. I've been listening to as many episodes as I can every day. I'm glad I'm so far behind so I can enjoy the podcast for a while longer before I run out. And then she also gave us a suggestion. We have some reviews to share with everyone. First one is from Felur. I think that's how you say it. The most adorable way to learn about paranormal history, five stars. Finally, remember to make a review after catching up on all the episodes. The two lovely ladies make dark and spooky events, locations, and people easier to understand with their calming voices and cute banter. The audio quality in the beginning is a bit rough, but it gets much better. Kept me company during those long trips along the West Coast. Well, thank you so much for that. And yes, our audio quality has definitely gotten better. So thank you. Our next one is from Nectar Maiden. Like being with two old friends, five stars, entertaining and educational, chock full of interesting tidbits as well as facts. I listen while I'm at work and it totally feels like my friends, Diane and Denise, have stopped by for a visit to fill me in on their latest adventure, a quality podcast. Well, thank you. We're so happy to take you guys with us. Yeah, I'm kind of questioning that old friends, though. I know. I always (laughs) go old as in we've known each other a long time or just you ladies are getting a little wrinkly. Or a lot wrinkly in my case. I'm just <laughs> kidding. We don't mind. Archituth, another favorite five stars. Thank you both, Denise and Diane, for a great podcast. I enjoy the history lessons included with the stories of possible hauntings. It sounds like you research thoroughly, and I enjoy that. I also like hearing how you appreciate your listeners. Thanks again. Thank you so much for that, especially the research part. Definitely appreciate that. We want to thank you guys for listening to this episode. I've been your host, Diane. And this has been Denise. You take care now. Bye-bye. This episode has been brought to you by our executive producers. We'd like to welcome new executive producers, Kelly, Jennifer Bott, B-O-H-T, and Camille Good. Thanks. Check out the website at historygoesbump.com. Valentine's Day, Dunkin's got the perfect pairings to show your love. So get down on one knee with a dozen brownie batter donuts and a cocoa mocha signature latte. Or make them swoon with a strawberry dragon fruit Dunkin' refresher with a Cupid's Choice Donut. Are you ready for love? America runs on Dunkin'. Price and participation may vary. Limited time offer.